David, Bob Woodward's new Donald Trump book is called Rage. His previous Donald Trump book was Fear. So if Woodward makes it a Trump trifecta, what doomy one-word title will he choose next? <laughs> Wait, when is this taking place in a hypothetical future where Trump is re-elected, or is this a post-Trump post, post Trump book about Trump? Let your imagination wander. I mean... We've seen that Trump has managed to break some of our, you know, some journalists that you would previously consider to be unbreakable over the past four years. There, I can totally imagine a world in which Bob, Bob Woodward's next book was, if Trump was reelected, was just the title was just "Wow," or <laughs> "Damn," or yeah, "Oh hell." I guess that's two words. Um, uh, what do you what do you think? Do you think Bob Woodward would drop the f bomb on the for the title of his book, or is he is he too yeah. dignified for that? It feels like more of a Matt Taibbi kind of move than a Bob Woodward kind of move if we're in the political writer. I just like him doing moods, right? Or moods or feelings. So there's fear, there's rage, right? Acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Resignation. Resignation. Ooh, that works two ways. That's good. I like resignation. Coming from Simon and Schuster in 2022. Resignation. It's time for the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here with a big show for you today. We'll answer your listener mail, including the question, what's the press box's Mount Rushmore of great headlines? The amazing novelist Don Winslow stops by to talk about his crime fiction and the Twitter videos he's producing to sideswipe Donald Trump. Plus, David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David... Bob Woodward's back. So what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, it, it goes it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. And that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more deadly. This is five per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You yeah. know, so... This is deadly stuff. Does it ever feel like your entire adult life, David, has been one long Bob Woodward news cycle? <laughs> like our, our pal Chris Sullentrop did the power rankings a couple years ago when he did the last book. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at it. And I was like, not only have I read a ton of these books, I have made content about a ton of these books. And I'm not even a political reporter. Yeah, it's easy to when there's not a, when we're not in the, you know, leaving through the press packets of a new book, it's easy to forget. But yes, I mean, I our political calendar, at least going back to what the Clinton Watergate? years. I mean, I know, yes, obviously Watergate's where it began. But yes, but like the Clinton like, years in our case, the Clinton years, like our, the, our political calendar is structured around Bob Woodward book releases. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. There's like we do a two every every term and and they really direct talk about, you know, 
steering the news cycle. I mean, everything is just sort of read in the context of those books. It's Bob Woodward book releases and then everyone in the White House and the Oval Office pointing at each other for why did you talk to Bob Woodward and why did we let the president talk to Bob Woodward? Those are the two things we can count on in every administration. But isn't Bob the, Woodward of all of them, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, in some ways, it, Bob Woodward is the is the one instance of this that makes sense, right? I mean, this book yes. is going to get written. It's going to have numerous people on or off the record, regardless of whether or not you talk. It's almost as if you got to hope that like by being on the record and by cooperating, you blunt the force of it, not by just getting your message out there, which is what a lot of, you know, I think a lot of the people on Trump's team were telling him in interviewing this, but almost that you change the perception from the consumer of the book if you're perceived to be on board, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, it's like Michael Jordan producing his own documentary, you know, it's like, well, we just think it, (laughs) we think of it in a different way if you're, if you're involved. I don't, I don't know. And, and the Woodward books, like I said, they're going to happen. They're going to sell a million copies. And it's different than like giving a sit, you know, giving an accidental five hour sit down to Olivia Nuzzi or whatever. And that's not a reflection of hers, you know, her abilities or anything. But the Woodward books are going to be epic regardless. And sitting down with them is a, is a kind of a rite of passage. But it's a little bit and it's also kind of understandable. It's uh, let's dig through a few of the revelations from Bob Woodward's The Last Dance uh, Trump edition here. That clip you just heard was from February 7th, a full month before the NBA shut down, by the way. And in, during that month, Trump was saying the virus was going away. It was going to be close to zero cases, that it would miraculously disappear. Contra to everything he's saying there to Bob Woodward. CNN also had the tape of a March 19th interview in which Trump told Woodward how he was talking about the virus to the American public. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob. Just today and, and yesterday, some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with you sure i want you to i be. wanted to uh I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes. Because I don't want to create a panic. Am I the only one fascinated by hearing the journalist ask the questions and how they walk the Trump-like figure up to answers like that? By the way, Mm -hmm. I could just, I could listen to the, I'm, I'm, you and I are probably the only two people on earth, but I listen to this all day. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. Oh yeah. I mean, was there anything better than the, oh no, no, I want you to be honest when Trump's about to be honest. It's really just like. Yeah, I mean, he, he he's not steering him. He's just sort of like, you know, patting him on the back and, and letting the conversation go on. So Daily Beast Sam Stein pointed out on Twitter, we've known for a while that Trump was downplaying the virus. We knew he was warned early on about the severity of the virus. But as Stein says, what's new here is Trump is admitting the latter as he did the former. Right. We're being able to put dates onto this timeline and saying very specifically Mm -hmm. on February 7th, this is what Donald Trump thought. We know this because Donald Trump is on tape saying it. (laughs) And that's very valuable when Mm -hmm. sort of going off and and uncovering all this. Stein also tweeted, there is so much in the Washington Post piece on the Woodward book 
that it's buried in like the 30th paragraph that Trump accidentally revealed a new U.S. nuclear weapon system. <laughs> Just an incidental revelation in Woodward's reporting. To the question of how did Woodward pull this off, which you raised, David, I absolutely agree with you. It's the implied threat that Bob Woodward is going to write this anyway. Mm -hmm. And we should note that that is the implied threat that is underlying so much journalism, particularly political journalism, mm -hmm. right? Some level, it's a power struggle. Do we think that this journalist is going to get this story? And do we think they have the ability? Do we think they've already gotten the story? And if so, then we want to come in and help this journalist or, or at least talk to this journalist. Mm -hmm. that, that's just a very basic journalistic transaction. With Woodward, it's magnified because it's like coronavirus, Trump, a huge best-selling book. Yeah. But that to me is a very, very normal, everyday power struggle between journalist and subject. Yeah, and and I know I made that that case before, but there isn't. But in in a lot of ways, or a lot of instances, the Trump administration should be the administration most insulated from that sort of transactional, and I mean that in the best possible way, you know, journalism, which is to say that like in every big, I mean, almost every every big Trump administration scoop that I can think of. It's not a matter of whether the reporter got the would have gotten the scoop anyway. It's it's almost always the access is the scoop, right? It's like the pre being present it like becomes the scoop in and of itself. Hearing somebody I got an say interview something with Trump, yeah. I got an interview with Trump is the scoop, or just the quote is the you know the the quote becomes the whole thing. And so, you know, practically, in the in the age that we live in, I think this book would probably I mean would certainly be a lot less damaging to Trump himself if he weren't on tape certainly if he weren't on tape saying these things it'd be a lot easier for his adherents to kind of hand wave it away as they've already tried to do you know even with this stuff on tape but you know he he, he sat down with them and he he, he made a he, he made a calculated decision and now we see what we got part of the appeal surely for trump too is bob woodward's celebrity it's yeah. bob woodward you know it's not that schlub from the washington post or the new york times who's always trying to get an interview this is bob woodward you know, there's some respect for this man. Trump loves celebrities, we know. And mm -hmm. Woodward, two years ago, published his first Trump book, didn't get a Trump interview. And Trump acted at the time like he was disappointed that his staff had not brought the invitation to him. Right. CNN's Caitlin Collins said Trump thought he could have convinced Woodward to make him look better, as you pointed out. And Trump even told Woodward, you know, I'm very open to you. I think you've always been fair. So that's a funny thing. And by the way, there is a Trump tweet for that, TM. This is from 2012. Uh, he's talking about watching Hannity. Sean's interview with Bob Woodward on the Hannity show was very interesting. Woodward <laughs> was great. <laughs> okay. So there you go with that. How could you possibly spin this one? Well, here's Louisiana Senator John Kennedy with CNN's Pamela Brown. Um, all I can do is share with you my point of view, Pamela. Uh, these, these gotcha books don't really interest me that much. He's on the record. He's on the They're record. These these gotcha books don't really interest me that much. Uh, there'll be a new one out tomorrow. But this is different. He he did 18 interviews with Bob Woodward. Mm -hmm. Right. So you he's he's recorded. You hear his voice, and you're seeing that. And you're contrasting that with what he says to the public. Wouldn't that be something mm -hmm. of interest to you as a United States senator? Well, let let me let me answer you again. These gotcha books don't really interest me. <laughs> do, do we think John Kennedy was actually holding the Jeffrey Goldberg 
talking points. They're like, well, these anonymous sources here have really got no, no, no senator. This is the president's voice on tape. This is not the anonymous source. Well, the it says here the Atlantic article is filled with anonymous sources. <laughs> <laughs> it was so generic. Oh my God. It, that's so great. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is what happens when you're just like totally caught flat footed, you know, when you only have, when there's no defense, you know, you end up with the one with the thinnest, like one line defense possible. I don't know why you're going on TV to try to put that out there, but somebody's got to do it, I guess. And Kaylee McEnany had a version of this. She said, well, this is something that the president allegedly told Bob Woodward and the person in the crowd said, no, no, <laughs> we actually heard the president's voice. I don't know what allegedly I, I can hear the voice on the tape <laughs> saying the thing. That is what we're referring to. By the way, I, I feel like I said this all the time on this podcast, but the the journalist tweet, particularly from political journalists, where people are like, why in the world would President Trump talk to Bob Woodward? <laughs> These are people who spend their whole day trying to get politicians to talk to them against interest. Mm -hmm. And then when a politician does exactly that, they do this weird Twitter thing. Like, why in the world would he do? Stop that. You're, you're trying to, you're doing the same thing. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Congratulate the president for doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, why would we want to, why would we want to put into the air that politicians shouldn't be this dumb? They no, they should, they should do this all the time. I, I just never, I never get that bit. And it holds, it comes out every time there's a revealing interview. The big media question that sort of consumed Twitter, at least our part of Twitter yesterday, was should Woodward have spilled the beans about some of these revelations rather than waiting seven months? Spill the beans at the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, call up his editor at the Washington Post and say, I got a, I got something. I, I got something and it cannot hold for the bookstore. I have thought about this over the last day or so. I sort of think Woodward's culpability here can be overstated somewhat. I saw yesterday there people saying, well, people died because of Donald Trump and Bob Woodward. I'm not sure they belong on the same platform mm -hmm. there. You know, I, I think that's not the I don't think that's the way to put it. It is hard for me to understand why he held this news outside of the fact that he wanted to put it into a book. Like I've read a couple different interviews with him. He's done this whole thing. Well, I needed to check it out, like check out the president's direct words. I don't, I don't, I don't quite, I just didn't understand that. And to me, the most convincing case is he wanted to hold this for his book. This is how big nonfiction books work, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want it to be parceled out to the newspaper. And so he held it for the book. Did you hear anything more convincing than that? No. I mean, Eric Wimple has some quotes in defense of it that I thought were sort of abstractly compelling. I mean, I think that Occam's razor will lead us to your conclusion being the right one, right? I mean, there might be a bit of a lot of external or a lot of other justifications for this. But I think that, I mean... Just practically, when you're writing a book, I mean, your your nonfiction book, the, you are targeting the release of your book as the time when all the information within it is released, right? I mean, that's the that's just the, the, practically what, where you begin and, and often where you end. And it's often a tension with newspaper reporters, like, why aren't you putting that in the paper? Why are you holding this for months down the line? Mm -hmm. And the argument here is we're in the middle of this absolutely bonkers pandemic. And the president is on tape. You have him on tape saying something about the virus, 
that is vastly different from what he is telling the public about mm-hmm. the virus and vastly different from the way the seriousness he is conveying to the public. So given that, given, and as tens of thousands of people die, how do you not at that point go, okay, <laughs> I know I've got a deal, but I have to, the public deserves to understand this information when they're evaluating the president or when they're going about their daily lives. Well, I think there's, uh, I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, I think that, that Eric Wimple, as, as I said, I mean, other people have made this sort of case for journalistic integrity. I think you can, I think you can, journalistic ethics can, I think it can justify holding it. I mean, it, but, but you're talking about a question of morality. And I think once you get into that territory, it's murkier, you know? I mean, I, I think that the answer is yes, you should have alerted the world from a moral perspective, but you know, I mean, you can certainly question whether or not that would have made any difference at all. Because we're not talking about a policy distinction. We're not talking about him coming out there. If he was out there, that would free Anthony Fauci or the CDC or whoever else is under Trump's thumb to act differently. It certainly wouldn't have necessarily made any sort of governing change for out of the White House and probably not out of Congress. You, so you're, ba- you're basically saying if Woodward had done the right thing, then legions of Trump supporters that were flouting masks and and driving up infection rates because the president told them that like, you know, insouciance is the way to go would have changed their mind because Woodward would have said it would have released this tape. I don't know that that's true. No. And I, I don't, but I don't even get to that second step of what would have happened if he had done this. I mean, you can certainly say that if you're blaming Woodward for thousands of deaths, or whatever, but I just get to the sense of, should you, should you put it out or not? Right. Yeah. Journal, journalists cannot control the flow of history to that, to that degree, but they can do their best to put out information factual information in this case from the lips of the president as quickly as possible. And mm-hmm. and I saw people saying, well, he might have made a deal with people in the Trump White House that he would hold right. this, which he turns out he did not make a deal or, or or at least he said he didn't make a deal. Well, remember the Brett Kavanaugh thing we did a couple of weeks ago yeah. where he had that he was going to out Brett Kavanaugh as one of his sources because Brett Kavanaugh was up for the Supreme Court and Woodward deemed it important enough. Mm-hmm. Well, so we understand that Woodward's deals with his sources can be changed based on circumstances, extraordinary circumstances. And surely these count as extraordinary circumstances. If you don't think Trump, by the way, has tried to get in on the whole Woodward held the scoop thing. Here's a tweet from today. Bob Woodward (laughs) had my quotes for many months. If he thought they were so bad or dangerous, why didn't he immediately report them in an effort to save lives? Didn't he have an obligation to do so? No, because he knew they were good and proper answers. Calm, no panic, exclamation point. And I think what's getting at reporters, David, too, here is just the machinery of the book rollout. Yeah. CNN gets the tapes yesterday. Woodward is going to be on 60 Minutes on Sunday. He cannot answer questions about the book other than how he reported it until the proper rollout on 60 Minutes, and then the book comes out two days later. And that just feels a little weird and a little unnerving given the scoop and given the subject of the virus. I mean, I don't think that I, I, I think that this is a very interesting conversation. And I think that I, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't I, I obviously lean towards where you are, that he should have he should have. I, I think you're right. Journalists can't talk about I mean, can't can't assume to, to steer history. But. I think that's a lot of the response. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the reactions that you're seeing right now are, like you said, at the top of the segment. 
that Woodward and Trump have, you know, are responsible for all these deaths. You know, I, I, I think that's that's taking it too far. Yeah, I think there's a there's a more subtle there's a more subtle point than that. One last note, David, amidst all the coverage, we hit a journalistic milestone yesterday. Here's Carl Bernstein, Woodward's old partner on CNN. Last time this happened uh, during Nixon's the end of Nixon's presidency, the Republican leadership including Barry Goldwater, the 1964 nominee of his party for president, went to the White House and told Nixon he had to resign. And the facts here are even graver than in Watergate. Graver than Watergate. Worse than Watergate. And that sounds like a big deal coming from Carl Bernstein. But Bernstein actually says this all the time about Donald Trump. Here he was two years ago during the Mueller investigation. More than that, I think it's time to recognize that what we are watching in the Trump presidency is worse than Watergate. Politico, in fact, has a historical list of 46 scandals that people over the years have called, quote, worse than Watergate. So I think we should just start using this now. The Milwaukee Bucks picking Eric Bledsoe over Malcolm Brogdon, worse than Watergate. Yeah, I'm willing to go out on a limb. Can we just have a, we, a segment where every week we find something that's worse than Watergate and give it a give it a championship belt? Absolutely, All absolutely. Right. That your, weekly, uh, your weekly worse than Watergate now on the ring. <laughs> something I saw on first take this week worse than Watergate. I'm ready. I'm ready to make the proclamation. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter. Made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received from the department of amazing timing. Right before these Woodward revelations, Ross Douthat of the New York times wrote a column about whether Trump's response to the coronavirus was terrible or actually just mediocre. <laughs> Douthat tweets. Once you step back from deaths and cause and case rates to other measurements of response capacity, the U.S. looks anywhere from slightly below to slightly above average. Once you step back from deaths, <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> Thanks to Betsy Keeley. That is quite a step back. Uh, Yahoo NBA reporter Chris Haynes has a new report out. Houston Rockets reserve Daniel House Jr. is under investigation by the league for allegedly allowing a female COVID-19 testing official into his hotel room. It was an overworked Twitter joke to call this a house call. Thanks to <laughs> Alex Panhands. I'm not implying anything. Just that's that's out there. And finally, David, a fascinating obit from the New York Times. Gerald Schur, the architect of the Witness Protection Program, has died. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Or did he? <laughs> Thanks to Jack and Todd H. If you made me think of Goodfellas, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke. Of the week. Time for the notebook dump, and let's do some listener mail. We do this every Thursday at the press box pod or DM us. First one's from Corbin. I'm waiting for the press box strained pun headline board game. I would play the <laughs> shit out of that. David, do you think we can get Parker Brothers? If there is indeed a Parker Brothers still extant in this world, interested in the strained pun headline board game. <laughs> I think we can. I think that there's a potential to produce a board game. I don't know if Parker Brothers is our target. Uh, I mean, it would be would would see us as their their target audience or their target demographic. But we'll, 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 we can figure this out. We're more in the what's, it, what's it going to be called? Yeah, what's, what is this going to be called though? Ooh, well, I think it kind of needs a pun, right? I know it's got to have the greatest pun of all time in the title. 
All right, hit us up at, at the Press Box Pod for that. From our friend Chad Orzel, last week's pigment of her imagination pun headline was a New York Post classic, which made me wonder what are your all-time Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame strained pun headlines? I've got a couple, David. Oh, please, I'm glad you have these. Let's go. All right. My favorite two that were attached to my pieces. Uh, at Grantland, I went and wrote a story about Maury Povich. I went back backstage at his show and got to see one of his You Are Not the Father shows. Mm-hmm. The headline suggested by my friend Michael Solomon was From Here to Paternity, <laughs> which is fabulous. I don't even think I told Rafe that that Michael Solomon wrote that. I think I just let him let him think I wrote it myself anyway. Sorry, Rafe, in advance. For Outside Magazine, I wrote a short feature on Anthony Bourdain, and this is when he was traveling the world for one of those shows, eating all the crazy exotic foods. Mm-hmm. The headline was written by my friend Michael Roberts. Anthony Bourdain does not taste like chicken. Anthony <laughs> Bourdain does that. There's certain subtlety, right? <laughs> and pretty great. But my all-time favorite that I can remember at this moment, nothing to do with me, New York Post. Martha Stewart is convicted. Remember that whole business? Martha Stewart is going yeah. to prison. The New York Post headline was simply curtains <laughs> curtains <laughs> anything oh, that's, that's that simple if you can get it down to one word yeah and it's a little dada you've won me over yeah curtains. all timer for me this is from tj wanderslug is there a journalistic version of the mandela effect where we hear a new shocking trump story and swear that it's a story that was previously reported years earlier I think the answer to that question is definitely yes. Is there a phrase for it or is there, does that effect exist? What's the question? Does that effect exist? I think he's asking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's happened. That happens to me. I mean, this, this is something about the speed of the news cycle, but there's definitely a time where you're just like, you know, you turn on MSNBC at like, you know, midnight and they're doing a rerun of one of the daytime shows and you're not sure which controversy <laughs> is being discussed with such, you know, yeah. you know, depth and significance. And I think we've all had the thing where, you know, Google News or Apple News or whatever, sort of like the algorithm breaks down when they find when they some sometimes they just like decide you like a thing. Or I don't, I don't even know how the algorithm works and they give you a story from like three weeks ago. So it does happen sometimes. And yeah, there's definitely times where I've seen like a Trump headline where I'm just like, no, not this again. Come on, Apple News, get your shit together. And then it turns out they were right. The secret nuclear weapons program for me was, was kind of one of those. Because I was like, didn't he tell the Russians about that when they were in the Oval Office? Oh, yeah. A couple years ago. But that was something else. Is there anything that's like more like literally significant to our lives and to the world and weirdly like less impactful in like headline or in breaking news form than just like Trump discusses secret nuclear weapon. <laughs> have we just seen too many movies that have rendered that like yes. fantasy? Yeah. It feels like a Pierce Brosnan era, James Bond movie. Not even, not even. Know, of- yeah. We know so little, presumably the Russians or the Chinese or whatever, know everything with such great detail. Apparently the foreign, you know, the foreign governments know everything with such detail that like the, the knowledge that there is a new thing might be more significant than, than it is to us. But like, if somebody has got a stockpile of nukes and they're like, Oh, Hey God, we got a new nuke. Like, I don't, it doesn't feel like the biggest deal in the world, even though it is. It is. <laughs> this is from Ruben Alonzo. Is there a term for an overworked Twitter joke that won't die? Every time a different appellate court in a different state kicks Kanye off a ballot, we all get the same jokes from local media reporters. Uh, 
I think the term you're looking for is Twitter. That is <laughs> that is where the overworked Twitter joke will never die because it's the same all the time. From Zach Waters for the mailbag. I was hoping you could spend a little time on the war no one is talking about, suburban front yard political signs. I'll see your 14 small Trump signs with my one giant Biden sign. Is there anything more passive aggressive? Is this happening in your corner of the world, David? Um, In my corner of the world, there's a lot more uh, Black Lives Matter signs than there are Biden signs or political signs in general. I know down in North Carolina, there's a yeah, I mean, my experience is from Charlotte, so it's, you know, a big city. I saw a bunch of handmade Biden signs in one yard, uh, not very many Trump signs. Uh, Pennsylvania is full of Trump signs. Um, I think that I can't speak much from personal experience. I got to be honest with you. So, I, But I do ascribe a certain sort of whatever, specific decision making onto the people that are putting these in their yard. And it does seem like everybody, you know, it's the sort of people that do bumper stickers, the sort of people that want to make sure their neighbors, you know, no, like get a sort of F you without actually having to say anything to their face. So, you know, it, there's nothing more passive aggressive than it. That's that's for sure. Yeah. And another level of passive aggressive, Zach, is where somebody is clearly anti-Trump, but they don't want to put a Biden sign up. So they put like any living human or what is it? Any functional human 2020. Oh, yeah. Which is kind yeah. of your halfway step to declaring that you're voting for Biden. Mm-hmm. That's always a favorite of mine. Uh, This is from Ty Yeager. I got to know your favorite and least favorite teams in all of sports. Well, whoa, uh, Dallas Cowboys for me. Number one, Dallas Cowboys. Doesn't that make me unique in this universe? Least favorite anybody else in the NFC East? I mean, Dallas Mavericks are number one for me. I had Mm -hmm. to sort of divorce myself somewhat from the Cowboys at some point. But David will come back someday. It's funny because I I would David consider, is in an open sports relationship. Let's put it that way with a lot of teams. I consider myself a Carolina Panthers fan instead of a Cowboys fan. However, to answer the second half, the antipathy for the other NFC East teams has has stayed. So I don't love the Cowboys <laughs> maybe like I used to, but I still hate the other three teams. Yeah, see, I like that. I can I can totally live with that. Finally, from Matthew Haber, while creating an anniversary video for my parents, I happened upon the press box theme music, which is called Evening Stroll. I, I did not know this, by the way. Where would you and David go for an evening stroll together? I can't believe you're giving this away for all the people that want to do like, you know, just fake episodes of the press box to put all over the internet and get us into trouble. Yeah. All the press box that, trolls that's gonna are going to be a real issue with this, with this knowledge. Um, man, I would go out in an evening stroll anywhere. Where do you, where, where, where do you want to go, Brian? Well, I think, no, I think he's asking where have we gone uh, for an evening? Oh no, he's where would you? But I think I was thinking where had we gone? Didn't we, didn't we do some down the bow in the Bowery when we were in the Lower East no, Side? Oh yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of East Side, broadly defined Lower East Side Manhattan strolling. You and I uh, in the twilight, kind of walking through, talking day, about the some, movie we just some, saw. There, there was a lot. Oh, yeah. Walking all the way down from Kipps Bay to like the Lower East Side. Oh, that's right. Dave and I would occasionally do the long walk. That was Dave and I's sort of method of exercise. And there was the, uh, but there's, I mean, prior to that, back in our, basically our functional childhoods, we did a lot of walking in D.C. <laughs> because we couldn't afford taxis and the subways all closed at 10, or you stopped using them at 10 o'clock or whatever. So if you went out to a bar, you would, we would walk home like three neighborhoods. Through three neighborhoods to get back to, you know, the couch or whatever. There was a lot of strolling there. I don't know. Is, is there anywhere else? Didn't yeah, do a lot note, of strolling in Texas. Note, note to listeners, uh, our functional childhood, we were 22 years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to know that. 
Uh, David, big guess this week, a guy that is in the Shoemaker Pantheon and the Curtis Pantheon, where our pantheons sort of come together. Mm-hmm. Don Winslow, crime novelist extraordinaire, and guy who tweets about Trump in entertaining ways extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Here's Don Winslow. Can your favorite crime novelist also be your favorite anti-Trump Twitter follow? Well, in Don Winslow's case, the answer is yes. Winslow's latest book is a short story collection called Broken. And on Twitter, at Don Winslow, he's not just lamenting the latest depravity of the Trump era, but producing original videos about Trump, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, and Kamala Harris-Don. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So when the Bob Woodward news dropped yesterday, I noticed on Twitter that you had flipped over to Fox News <laughs> to watch how they were handling it. Was that morbid curiosity on your part or a little uh, sadistic glee? A little bit of both. Uh, more morbid than sadistic, I think. But yeah, real curiosity. I mean, how do you handle something when you're caught red-handed? <laughs> Are you a Fox Newsologist in your spare time? I am not a Fox Newsologist. You know, look, I mean, I look at them because it's always good to know what the opposition's doing and and what they're saying. But it's not my favorite time of the day or the week, no. So a lot of novelists are tweeting through this campaign. I see Stephen King tweeting over there, but you have been producing Twitter videos under the banner Don Winslow Films. Earlier this month, a video called Trump is not like you. There's a new one that links Kamala Harris with Rosa Parks, a civil rights pioneer, and another very stark one called America's Greatest Mistake. How do these videos come together? You know, my buddy Shane Salerno and I, my my agent, my friend, co-conspirator, you know, uh, A-list screenwriter in his own right. I work on them with him. You know, listen, I mean, I never thought of myself as a, a video maker or or even a political person uh, for that matter until kind of recent times. But, you know, these are extraordinary times and it demands it, you know, for those of us who have even a, a small voice uh, to to say something, to come out with it. We got a lot of videos floating around the world right now from like the Lincoln Project, right? And other people. Is there something you specifically want to clarify in yours about Trump? Well, I want to tell the truth. I I want people to look at at the facts and there's nothing but facts in those videos. You know, it's an extraordinary opportunity where you can put something together and 48 hours somewhere between five to six million people can look at it. So hopefully some people are looking at it and and seeing maybe for the first time the unalloyed truth coming out. And why a video instead of writing something, for instance, about the election? Well, I've written a lot. You know, I've done a lot of op-eds. I've taken out ads in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And, you know, I've written a few books that have some fairly political content to them. But let's be honest. We live in a visual age. And particularly, you know, in the COVID era when people are staying home and that's what they're doing is they're looking at this screen like I'm looking at it now. Uh, It seemed to be the more powerful medium. And are these directed at people who would read your novels? Is that the audience here? I hope the audience is everybody. I certainly, I mean, I think the initial audience are, are people who read my books, but I think it's it's reading, a, it's reaching rather a much wider audience. You know, we're getting, you know, five, six million views. I think something like there's been 50 million views or something on these videos, which is mind bending. And did I see Twitter said your initial Trump is not like you video violated their standards for some reason? Yeah, 
I'm glad you brought that up. What, what's been happening on several of these videos is that these bots have been getting on in their tens or hundreds of thousands and automatically complaining falsely that there's nudity and violence in these videos, which there is not. So what happens is that Twitter picks that up, they freak out, they shut them down, they put on this video contains sensitive material, you need to change your settings. Then they come back in and they realize there's no violence, there's no nudity, there's no sensitive material in here at all. And then they put it back up. But that's eight or nine hours later when the damage has been done. Ah, I see. Yeah, the only nudity and violence would be clips from a Trump press conference. Which is which is which would be offensive, but not in that in yeah, that way. Endlessly offensive, but not nearly naked enough. Looking at your Twitter feed yesterday, you had dozens of tweets and retweets uh, from subjects ranging from Woodward to Kaylee McEnany to Chanel Rion, the OAN reporter, yeah. quote unquote. <laughs> How do you manage being online like that and also turning out fiction at the rate you want to? You know, I finished my latest book in last fall, I think around, in fact, this time of the year. I've been working on other things, but in all candor, I've slowed them down in order to address the, exactly the issue that you're referring to. Oh, really? So you're not writing, are you still writing fiction like part of the day or just doing completely, compl uh, your mind is- Very, very little, very little. Because it's funny with some writers who aren't political reporters, right? They read all this Trump news and it puts them <laughs> into this state of agitation. And it's very hard to switch from that to a state that's conducive to writing. Do you have that issue at all? You know, I don't really. I think maybe the first two or three days after Trump was elected, I did. You know, I, I woke up thinking this is not the country that I thought it was. And it took me a couple or three days to, to get back to work. But look, that, that's what we do, isn't it? That's what you do. That's what I do. We have to shove the anxiety and the angst aside and, and go back to working on whatever we're working on, whether it be a novel or, or this more political content. A few tweets of yours jumped out at me. I can't wait for Donald Trump to announce that Mexico will be paying for the vaccine. <laughs> that was funny. And then also 2020, the year we get rid of the two scummiest families on the planet, the Trumps and the Kardashians, is that... Uh, <laughs> Is Twitter a release for you? Do you see it that way at all? No, not really. There's there's no catharsis there. Uh, you know, listen, every once in a while, it's good to be funny. It's good to be sharp. I, I think it does do some good. I don't see it as a release. I, I really view it as, as a very straightforward effort uh, to communicate certain realities and certain truths. Sometimes that comes to the form of, of some offhanded humor. More often, it's it's more straightforward. Do you ever hear from readers that say, Don, I love the force. I love the cartel, but your politics are pissing me off. Sure. And what's your <laughs> I answer? I hear from them. I hear from people who are, you know, don't love my books and don't love me who are pretty upset. Listen, I, I think that, that we are complete human beings. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So a big part of what I do and, and the biggest part of my life is writing these novels and writing these books. And I hope people like them. I, I think that they do. I, I do my absolute best and I'm, I'm very grateful to have that gig. On the other hand, you can't just separate and say, well, because I'm a fiction writer, I have no political beliefs. More importantly, I have no ethical or moral beliefs because I think this all goes beyond politics. This is not a, a left or a right issue anymore. This is a right and a wrong issue. So when, when you're throwing kids into cages, 
when you're lying about something as lethal as COVID-19, when, when you're calling veterans, losers and suckers, including my dad, who was on Guadalcanal when he was 18, including friends of mine whose names I've seen on the Vietnam Wall in Washington and calling them losers and suckers. Now we're into a moral and ethical realm, even more than a political realm. This, these things are just wrong. And so I don't think that we can just say, or at least I can't say, well, I'm a crime fiction writer. That's what I do. I'm going to set the rest of my beliefs aside. Uh, I can't do that. My favorite story in your new book, Broken, was a story called The Last Ride, which dives right into the crisis at the board of the Trump creators. Story opens with the line, the first time he saw the child, she was in a cage. So when you dive into something that is that fresh, that visceral, is that exhilarating as a fiction writer? Is that scary? How does that play in your mind? It was painful um, and sad, to be honest with you. Look, in writing that story, I was really writing a Mm neo-Western for a number of reasons. At the end of the day, it's about a guy on a horse. It's about an old cowboy. What I was trying to get at was a return to some of our older values that, that might even, in fact, be conservative values. I remember when we used to rescue children, not, not lock them up, you know? And I live in a very conservative part of the world. I, I live on an old ranch uh, and I'm surrounded by cowboys, mm-hmm. basically conservative in their beliefs. But, but if you talk to them, on a moral and ethical level and on the level of that sort of older cowboy code of the way we used to behave, uh, then you start getting somewhere. So the cowboy here is Cal, who is a border patrol agent, watches Fox News, buys American trucks, an F-150 to be exact. And the idea, the idea of the neo-Western is there's a corrupt law out there. There's a corrupt force, but there is a moral code that he is trying to pursue outside of that law. Am I getting that right? I think you've got it exactly right. Look, you know, Raymond Chandler, the great Raymond Chandler, the grandfather of all of us who do this gig, once wrote famously about the detective hero, down these mean streets must walk a man who is not himself mean. Hmm. Had he been writing 30 years earlier, he might have written down these mean canyons rides a man who is not himself mean. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the same code. And I think, you know, don't get me started. I could do a whole lecture. I won't. Don't worry about, you know, how the American crime novel comes out of the American Western novel. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, it, it would have been easier to approach that story from the point of view of the child or the mother or, or let's say a social worker or defense attorney for that kid would have been the easier choice and the easier way to go. Uh, but I thought it was more interesting to start with a character who, who believes the Trump lies about the border. And, and in fact, it's his job to stop these immigrants from coming through. And, and then more interesting to talk about a guy who changes his mind. You know, and, and I think in terms of fiction, conflict is always more interesting, you know, and when you can look at a, a character and there's a conflict between God, what did I believe and what do I believe? You know, what's the easy thing to do? What's the hard thing to do? Those are interesting to a fiction writer. Did you talk to Border Patrol agents when you were creating that character? 
I talked to them long before that. I've, I've known them for a long time. I live along the border. I realize how melodramatic that sounded when it came out of my mouth, but I, but I do, I, I live, you know, in a border area. Uh, so I know border patrol agents, both professionally and socially. Uh, I've, you know, I think driven, ridden, or walked every mile of that border. So yeah, I was pretty familiar with, with what they think and how they think and what goes on. What is, what is surprising about them? Because they are figures in this Trump created drama, right? In some, in some cases, it's similar to the police characters you've written about, but what do you, what is surprising about them to those of us who, who don't know people in the border patrol, do you think? You know, it's, it's always dangerous to generalize because you're talking about thousands of people. And so on the one hand, you might have those just absolute believers. And on the other hand, you have people for whom this is just the job. Uh, what struck me when I was out with them years ago was how depressed they were, mm. how sad. But in those days, they viewed their primary mission as a rescue mission. They used to put up tall, not towers, but what am I trying to say, poles with red flags on the top to mark where they stored water, cached water, for immigrants who were lost out there in the desert. Uh, now that mission has profoundly changed, and I think that the Border Patrol has changed with it. But, you know, the surprising thing, I think, as it is with, with cops, you know, again, you're talking about a very, you know, varied group of people. Uh, this job has its effect on them, no question about it. Your writing schedule begins at 5 or 5.30? in the morning most yeah, days. Yeah. What, what is it about those morning hours that's conducive to writing? Uh, the numbers. I just need a lot of hours. <laughs> I wish it were otherwise. You know, I, <laughs> I wish I could go to a coffee shop and, you know, the muse lands on my shoulder and whispers sweet nothings into my ear that I could then <laughs> type and get another coffee. But that's not the way my working life uh, happens. You know, I just need that number of hours per day. And so I need to start early. I wish it were otherwise, to tell you the truth, but it's, but it's not. I also read that you often are working on two things at the same time, or you have two, two things you could be working on. What is the, what is the value for you of doing it that way? Uh, it's to have a fresh pony in the corral. You know, speaking of Westerns, you know. Uh, look, I, I do. I start at 5.30. I know to be, if I'm being honest with myself, that by around two in the afternoon, anything I write on that book is likely to be garbage. It's, it's headed for the delete key, uh -huh. you know? And so I've sort of learned why bother, you know? And so what I tend to do is then switch over to another project and that feels fresh and, you know, I can bring a different perspective to it and it to me. And so that's pretty much the way I work. Wait, so you mount the fresh pony at like two in the afternoon, and then that could be A or B material as opposed to unusable material on that project? Yeah, I think so. Usually it is, you know. Yeah, I ride that one around to torture the metaphor until, you know, five or five thirty and and then I quit. You know, and then all the horses are in the barn. But uh yeah. Uh no, it's it, it's really it's really quite useful. I was just going to say I've tried it. I think with articles once or twice, yeah. but it always happens that it just becomes an excuse for me not to finish article number one, which I should have been working on because I'm oh look, look at number two over here. Wouldn't that be nice to work on? Yeah, but exactly. You, you know, I, I maybe have a bit more leisure, you know, uh, because book deadlines tend to be farther away, <laughs> you know? and I don't think about them anyway. So it's easy then to stop at around one thirty, two o'clock and say, okay, 
you know, I'm going to pick up project B or project C and play with it. Other times, though, I might just choose to go back to earlier chapters in the main book and I'll do weird stuff. You know, like sometimes I'll just take 10 pages and I'll only look at the verbs. <laughs> Literally. And, we'll, and yeah. what is that? What does that exercise do? I, I get better verbs. <laughs> <laughs> you can juice them up 25%. Yeah, I'm like, I look at them and I think, is that accurate? Is that really what's happening? Is that guy doing that? Is that woman really doing that? Can I be more specific? Can I be more vivid? And if then all those requirements are met, can I be more poetic? You mm -hmm. know, do the, the consonants have the sounds that they should? Or is there a different verb that, that works that would have the better consonants or vowel sounds or whatever for, you know, whatever the piece is? Um, I live in Huntington Beach, California, not yeah. too far from the pier where you set a scene in Broken. Yeah. And Raymond Chandler, as you, whom you mentioned, showed us why L.A. is a good setting for crime fiction. So why is the Pacific Coast Highway and the beach cities between here and San Diego, why is that a good setting for crime fiction? May I first add, because it annoys my L.A. friends, that Raymond Chandler wrote his great L.A. novels while living in San Diego. That's right. La Jolla, right? Yeah. Just just off Highway 101. I've been go. in love with Highway 101 for 30 years. From the moment I first drove that sucker, I, I came out to the West Coast when I was still a P.I., and I was on a case and I had an unexpected day off. And I thought, well, I'm going to drive this Pacific Coast Highway I've heard so much about. And uh, that was just north of Laguna Beach, California. And I, I drove it south to, to Dago, San Diego. And I fell in love. And I have to tell you, I never get tired of driving that road. Ever. It, it's always exciting to me. It's always evocative to me. It has what I've called the small gods of place. You know, the little taco shops, the surf shops that you can get used to driving by or stopping in, certain beaches, certain breaks. I, I never tire of it. Yeah. And your your PCH is yoga studios. It's breakfast burrito dives, right? It's yeah. oceanside apartments. Yeah. Um, and I was never convinced that, you know, criminality could lurk in such a place until huh. the coronavirus when I walk out on the PCH now and it's the anti-masker capital of the world. And Is I feel right? now, now yeah. I understand the evil heart of the PCH, at least around Huntington Beach. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I one thing I love about writing crime fiction and also in that setting is is it's it's like surf, isn't it? If you if you stand on the beach or on one of those bluffs above the beach and you look at the ocean, you see the pretty waves. And they are, they're absolutely gorgeous and they're real. The, the beauty is real. It's good to know though, and what's fun to explore as a crime writer is what's beneath the surface. That what's causing that wave is always something deep and dark. And it's something that might have happened days ago or weeks ago. Uh, and it can be affected by a lot of things that we don't see. And that's where the danger lurks. And that's where the intrigue lurks. And, and that's why I like working in that setting a lot. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, Don, is your use of the one-sentence paragraph. You write the most exquisite one-sentence paragraphs anywhere. I'm going to read a short okay. passage from Broken here. This is from the point of view of the character O. Not everyone is going to like it, she thinks. New paragraph. They don't have to, she thinks. New paragraph. Only I do. New paragraph. Fuck everyone. <laughs> End of section. How did, how did that particular bit of style evolve in your writing? 
it, it started when I when I wrote a book called Savages, I think back in 2010, which is where that character, uh, O, originated. Uh, I wrote a rather famous opening chapter, two words, the, the second of which is you and the first of which is not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I realized was that that reading, and we sometimes forget it, is not only a mental, intellectual event, it's also a visual activity. And so there are times when I want thoughts to run on, like in an action sequence, I want to grab you by the shirt and not let you go until I'm done with you. And so I'll just keep da 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 word, 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 word. Other times, though, I really want to focus the reader on a thought or a image. And I realize that just like in a painting or a photograph, that image needs negative space. It needs a lot of emptiness around it so that it, it forces the reader to take a break both before and after it, if only slight. And then that brings that word or two or that sentence out. Don Winslow's latest book is broken. He is at Don Winslow on Twitter, where a new video from Don Winslow Films. I understand many new videos are in the offing. We are going to be doing videos, sir, until the election and maybe after. And uh, we got one coming up. Watch for it. Uh, that's I'm very excited about. Look out, Lincoln Project. You've, you've got some competition. Thank you so much for being here, Don. Thanks so much for having me. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker. Guesses the strained pun headline. All right. Monday's pun headline about a college professor who lied about her race was pigment of her imagination. Today's pun headline comes from Will Holland. It's also from the New York Post, but from the sports page. David, are you aware that the Toronto Blue Jays are playing this year in Buffalo? Yes, I am uh, dimly aware <laughs> With that the baseball, Blue Jays are I always playing have in... to check, you know. With oh, yeah. Bit. No, I still I still have to pay attention to work slack and stuff. It's, it's you know, I, I got I to keep vague. I got to sort of, you know, open my mind to these things. So the Yankees go there and lose in embarrassing fashion, giving up 10 runs in one inning. Your word is Buffalo. Buffalo. What was the New York Post's? Strained pun headline. Uh, buffalo wings, buffalo sauce, buffalo. Uh, mm, let me go a little different there. Buffalo chicken, no. buffalo. Uh, Maybe another team that plays in Buffalo. Buffalo Bills, buffalo. There we go. Buffalo mm. uh, Nils. <laughs> Close. Buffalo, uh, That'd be good if they scored zero runs. What was the score? 10, 10, 10 runs? Well, they just got blasted. Oh, they blasted. gave up 10 and run one inning. That's not important. Uh, they just got blasted. The Buffalo... Uh, Buffalo... Uh, not Buffalo Nils, but Buffalo... Kills? Zil, zilch? Zil, Bill, uh, Dil. Why, don't, why can't I think of this? Time's you got to tell me. Buffalo Ills. Oh, God. All right. <laughs> I tried every other content at the beginning of Ill and didn't think of Ill. That was great. Sometimes the New York Post gets to pigment of her imagination. Sometimes you settle for Buffalo Will. <laughs> Happens to everyone. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Lonnie Ronaldo. Thank you, Lonnie. We're back Monday with a cool guest. Lukewarm takes about the media and a podcast that will be, wait for it, worse than Watergate. See you then, yeah. David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>